Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And next on the BBC, in line with the government's white paper asking us to make less popular content, here is Top Gear presenter Chris Evans trying to hum the same note for 45 minutes while the body of a dead rabbit decomposes in his lap. Welcome to this week's Partly Political Broadcast. I'm Tiernan Duyeb, and I'm not a racist, but I do really hate the 100 metre sprint, 1500 metres and the relay, as they all seem pointless when sitting down is so, so nice. By the time you hear this podcast, you'll either be gearing up to vote on Thursday, doing the appropriate stretches, getting prepared to think, who are they, about all the names you haven't researched on the ballot, you know, planning exactly how you'll draw a cross. Two equally long lines, one long line, one short, all drawn at once without taking your pencil off the paper, knowing full well no one can see you do it so they won't judge. Or perhaps you'll just embed the sort of religious wooden cross you'd show a vampire in case somehow Michael Howard sees it and then dies and you've saved all the villagers. Ultimately, whatever you do, don't forget to vote for who you believe in, which is why I'll be voting for Odin, the Allfather. Or you'll be listening to this after Thursday, wondering why, again, no one bothered to vote except all the people with the wrong opinions. And you'll spend at least 30 minutes contemplating which other country you should move to. Uh, my list always includes Iceland, before complaining about how the polls got it wrong and so misled you, or got it right but only by misleading people. On this week's show, there is some election stuff, but not this week's election, as that would make too much sense. Also, I interview Rebecca Omanira about the UK's hidden crisis and its treatment of refugees. And, of course, I'll be looking at all the aunties that have been in the news, including Auntie Beeb and uh, anti-Semitism. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, again, uh, thanks, 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 and thanks again for listening to this show. Um, I was at the ever-lovely... Uh, yet controversial to pronounce McCunlith Festival this weekend and 
Several of the lovely audience that turned up to hear me spout new jokes all said that they really enjoyed this podcast. So hello to you if you're listening. Uh, And also hello to the student who said that they'd be using this podcast for their coursework. uh, And sorry in advance for all the bad results you'll get if you rely on some of the puns that have happened over the last 15 episodes. Please do keep spreading the word about the show. Uh, it makes it all the more worthwhile doing it if even more of you get listening. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what to call you regular listeners or the people that have been listening since episode one. Uh, Parpol bros and sisses. I mean, that's that's weak, isn't it? Partly listeners. Yeah, that doesn't really sound very good either. It just sounds like you're not really paying much attention. Team partly. I mean, that, that's just crap, isn't it? Okay, I give up. Um, send your suggestions to partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com or our Twitter or Facebook for what I should refer to you all as, please. Otherwise, I'll just sort of keep going, you. It's just you, innit? You know, you. Uh, also, um, before we get started on this week's show, if you are in London this week and you listen to this before Thursday and you need a bit of cheering up after you vote, um, I'm on Andy Zaltzman's Political Animal at the Udderbelly South Bank uh, that very night. Um I think it's about a 9pm start, um, and I consider Andy and John Oliver's Bugle podcast to be the sort of learned grandparent of this show, uh, and Political Animal is always a brilliant, brilliant live show with lots of excellent acts. Um, although, the last time I gigged with Andy Zaltzman at the Udderbelly was on election day last year uh, with me and Josie Long, and we heard the 10pm exit poll predictions while we were on stage. And there's really nothing that ruins a comedy gig in the midst of its sort of happening uh, like hearing that the conservatives have won an election outright um, hopefully that won't happen this thursday but if it does a i'll stop doing andy zaltzman shows on election nights and b at least we'll all be able to cry laugh together inside a theater in a giant inflatable upside down purple cow on the south bank um i'm also a little bit of a thing for the podcast listeners uh, as i don't think he's announcing them properly um i'm going to be supporting frankie boyle on some of his work in progress shows in london again sorry non-londoners uh, on may the 4th 7th 8th 9th 10th and 11th um of this month so do check out frankie's website and twitter for the times and venues for all of those too right on with all of this <laughs> You know Channel 4 News, the one with the Jon Snow that actually knows something? Uh, They've uncovered repeated electoral fraud by the Conservatives in the lead-up to the 2015 general election. You might remember the Conservatives' battle bus from some of the coverage at the time. It was a bit like a megabus had shagged a blue whale and then fed only on mixed nuts. And the battle bus carted Conservative activists to 29 seats, which they went on to win 22 of. However... The party spent more than £38,000 on accommodation for said activists because apparently they're too posh to sleep on a coach. And I bet they also didn't eat the complimentary Megabus muffin as it wasn't organic either. Although, I think that's only on Megabus Gold and to be honest, after eating it, I don't think anyone should have it. My stomach was horrible for days. Apparently, if all the money spent on accommodation had been declared by the local candidates they were campaigning for, rather than as part of the national campaign budget, they'd have exceeded the legal spending limit in 24 constituencies. The Conservatives insist the battle bus was a national campaign, but Channel 4 discovered that they were operating at a local level for local candidates. The Conservative Party press office have admitted it was an administrative error. You know, the kind where you make the sort of error that no one in your entire carefully plotted campaign can see, despite all the work and checks that must have had to go into it. You know, like when you spell the as t or something. Only it's thousands and thousands and thousands of thes that have become ters in a way that may affect the entire election. T-election. 
The Electoral Commission have just asked police and prosecutors for an extension in order to investigate this properly. It is a legal matter, but I can't seem to find any answers online as to what will happen if they are found guilty of electoral fraud. I'm guessing it'll probably just be a fine or something, but that will be up to the Crown Prosecution Service. The Conservatives had a 12-seat majority in 2015, and this scandal affects 22 seats. So would them spending less have made any difference to the campaign? I mean, possibly. Possibly not. But there is a slight chance that without administrative errors, we'd all be a lot happier right now. The CCHQ also said that the party took the view that the battle bus was part of the national return, especially as the party was below the limit on their national fund. And I wonder if this mistake sums up everything wrong with the Conservative Party. I mean, getting confused between local and national. It explains why they keep insisting local councils fund national services. Maybe we should all do the same too. And in the next set of local elections, whether it's this Thursday or next year for some of you, think of those local elections as national elections and think about whether or not you'd like a government who really can't even sort their admin out. A few weeks ago, I went to a panel discussion about the upcoming London mayoral elections. Uh, This discussion in particular was on the theme of moving and it focused on a number of issues like London's living costs, housing crises and immigration. Um, The latter of which has now been in the news pretty much non-stop for about two years, which is a combination of the horrific situation in Syria, obviously, uh, and also in the UK here, a rise in groups like UKIP, uh, who have conveniently forgotten that bankers caused the crash in 2008 and instead like to point the finger at people coming here from abroad. I mean, that makes total sense, right? You know, if you've managed to survive a war zone by the skin of your teeth, you own absolutely nothing and have no belongings, and you have come here with the hope of a better life and some actual humanity and hospitality from other human beings, you know, maybe you did just travel back in time several years and collapse the entire world banking system, resulting in the UK's public services being dismantled by a government who insists on selling them off. I mean, standard, mate, isn't it? Standard. Anyway, one of the people on that panel that I went to was journalist Rebecca Omanira. Um, Rebecca does that old school type of investigative journalism that you might remember from the old days, uh, where she actually goes and meets people and hears their stories and learns about them. Um, And on that evening, that discussion panel, she discussed a number of things that I had no idea about, which, uh, yes, there's loads that I don't have any idea about, but in particular, um, she was mentioning how current immigration policies are leaving some uh, women trapped in domestic violence situations. Um, It was upsetting hearing about it, and it was upsetting knowing that this is a hidden crisis, and so unknown to far more people than just me. So... I thought I should annoy Rebecca until she very, very kindly agreed to let me interview her for this show about that uh, and also about how the UK treats refugees uh, in general. Okay, um, so Rebecca, I saw you talk at a panel a few weeks ago at Foils um, and I thought you were absolutely brilliant. Uh, But one of the things that you said uh, that I think I found shocking and most of the audience did was about the hidden crisis of women who are at risk of domestic violence uh, because of their immigration status. Um, Could you tell us a bit more about it and and why don't people know more about it? Yeah, okay. So um, I'll take the question in two parts. And first, I'll just um, explain exactly what I mean by people who can't um, get help because of their immigration status. Now, under immigration law, um, a person who is given leave to remain in the UK, 
uh, might be subject to special conditions um, which prevent them from accessing um, social services. And uh, these can vary from um, depending on what a person's migration status is. You don't hear much about these um, particular migration um, statuses, which is is strange because <laughs> considering the government is always sort of coming up with uh, ways to curb um you know, how, how migrants access the health service, for example, or benefits, mm. but they actually have these in place and they're, they're very old. I mean, it comes from a, a law from the 70s. And um, these public funds are set out in this law and they're things like job seekers allowance, housing benefit, child benefit, disability living allowance. Um, and it, it, so people, these are people not illegally resident in the UK. They're, they have they have the legal right to stay in the UK, but they just have res- restricted access to these public funds. So, for example, um, last year I interviewed one uh, woman who was actually born in Jamaica, right. and she was brought over to this country as a teenager, and her status was never quite sorted out. And it was only when she went to apply for a British passport when she was about 30 that she realised that she didn't have, you know, she wasn't, um, she wasn't legally resident. So the Home Office said, OK, we will get, you're allowed to stay here and you can have a temporary status, which means you, you're allowed to stay in the country, but you can't access public funds. So she couldn't access child benefit. She couldn't access housing benefit. Wow. Um, her local authority had no responsibility to help her. She was working as a care worker in low paid work. She had a five year old son and was struggling a bit. She needed access to housing benefits. She needed um, child benefit, but she couldn't get any of those. So that's basically what it means if you hear people talking about migrants who have no recourse to public funds. Sure. Does that are they unable to apply for citizenship if that's their status or how does that affect? They have they already they kind of have a type of citizenship. So. But, but they're not allowed then the, the full, that's so odd that they're then blocked from full citizenship. Yeah, it's utterly unbelievable. Like, I'm I'm constantly interviewing lawyers and saying, are you sure? Is this, does, so are you saying that, you know, these people exist and this is okay and, and that's the law and they're, and they're just like, yes. And also um, what you're, what I find is every time I speak to an immigration lawyer, they're, they're incredibly stressed and, and under a huge amount of pressure because the law is constantly changing, particularly um, when you get home secretaries who are very uh, keen to like crack down on migrants and they're constantly changing the rules. So it means that they have got to constantly be training. And so sometimes they lose track of all the different types of statuses that people have. But yes, these people do exist and they can't access um, public funds. So where this um, can hit uh, women or, or, or anyone, not just women, um, anyone in a relationship, um, that breaks down because of domestic violence. So I don't know if people know about how domestic violence refugees are funded, but most of them rely on housing benefit. So if a British woman leaves her violent husband and goes to a refuge, she will need to apply the housing benefit, which will be paid to the refuge, which helps them to run it and keep it going. Now, if you have a woman who has no recourse to public funds, wants to flee her partner and go to a refuge, she doesn't have access to housing benefit. So it's impossible for that refuge to then look after her because they need they need some sort of funding to do that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it totally does. But that's that's really upsetting because that's not the refuge's fault, I suppose, because they need the funds in order to look after these women. But 
if the funds aren't there, then how can they, they do what they yeah. need to? Yeah. So there are some exceptions. So um, the Southern Black Sisters um, group, which is a, um, a campaigning uh, group, an activist group based in West London, and they've, they've been going for decades now. And they, they had a big campaign around this. Um, I think it was in the... Sort of, they've been campaigning for decades, but they made headway around 2005, 2006. And they managed to get the Labour government to introduce a pilot project, which um, allowed an exception... In this, under this sort of no recourse to public funds rule. So it meant right. that if you, um, uh, women on particular visas could apply to have their, their, their status um, of restricted access to public funds lifted, mm-hmm. which would mean for three months or a, a set period of time, they could then apply for housing benefit and the things that they needed to, to leave their, the, the difficult relationship that they were in. And during this time, as well as accessing benefits and, and other um, social service support, they could also apply for um, indefinite leave to remain. So that concession was introduced um, as a pilot project um, by the Labour government. Um, when the coalition came in in 2010, it wasn't quite clear whether or not they were going to continue it. Um, they did renew it, and in 2012, they introduced their own version, which isn't perfect, but it's still it, the concession is in, in place. Right. So there, there is some support for the women. I guess what I the problem with that 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 concession is that it doesn't cover all um it doesn't cover all women that fall within the status i really worry of getting too technical no 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 it's it's, it's no it's um no you're being very very clear i mean so yeah. what why why would some women not fall into that sort of concession why 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 are people exempt from that okay so i guess one example would be to qualify for this concession you have to have entered the country on a spousal visa and be married to a british or settled person so um, a woman that I wrote about, um, I'll just call her Nabila, mm-hmm. uh, she was brought to this country by her husband and his family on a student visa. Now, she came from um, Pakistan. She didn't speak very much English. She didn't know what sort of visa she came to this country on. So that was that was something that was beyond her control. She didn't was unaware when she didn't know when the visa expired. She only realised how um, insecure her status was when she tried to leave her partner and was told that because you're not on a spousal visa, you don't qualify for this concession, so we can't help you. God. Um, oh. Yeah, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's awful. So, and yeah. I've also spoken to women in other parts of the country who, who, um, who do come on a spousal visa, and when that expires and they try and get it, sorted out and uh, one form of, of domestic violence is um coercion and controlling a woman's you know movements and uh, i i've heard of some um partners who will actually use a woman's migration status as a as a form of control so he might prevent her from taking steps to actually sort out her migration status because it means that he has more control over her because if she tries to leave or does something he doesn't want um, her to do then he'll just say well I could just call up immigration they're going to deport you from sure. this country they don't care about you because does a spousal visa I presume require both parties to apply for it um no uh, a British uh, a settled British person can, oh, of course can apply for it. yeah sure. yeah and um oh another another issue is that um and I know the case is going through 
the high court at the moment um is that so you can you can qualify for the concession if you're on a spousal visa and married to a british or settled person home the home office is trying to say that a refugee is not a, a, a settled person so there's a particular case that i came across where an eritrean woman um her refugee husband so he's got actual refugee status he started to um, mistreat her when she tried to leave she didn't qualify for the concession because he wasn't considered considered a settled person right yeah that's awful yeah that's is that a recent change have they is that because i mean it feels like there's so much animosity towards refugees at the moment coming from the government um is that i'm guessing that's one of the clauses they've brought in recently is it to change a refugee Uh, status from not being settled no no i think um it's it's something that has just developed um and i think I think it's, I guess it's, um, these problems arise as, as you have different types of people moving to the country and mm. having different types of experiences. So if you don't develop the law to deal with that, then then gaps would, that wouldn't have mattered in the past do sure. now. If that makes sense. Yeah. Sure. And I mean, is there, because I, I read something that this has been, this has been put to Theresa May, that there are problems in this area. Is it, does it look like the Home Office are, are planning to do anything else to kind of, work around these issues or i really don't think so um (laughs) it's the home office's policy on this is just astonishingly hypocritical i remember going to there was a conference a couple of years ago i don't know if if you remember um it was hosted by william haig and angelina (laughs) jolie yes i do remember that yeah weirdest combination of people you can get yeah (laughs) I know, and it was um, fascinating. It was a whole conference about ending sexual violence in conflict, mm. and um, you had uh, you had politicians from all over the world. You had NGOs. I um, mean, John Kerry came and gave a speech. Brad Pitt was there, and and then outside on one of the days, you had um, a load of women who had formerly been detained in Yarlswood Immigration Detention Centre outside protesting. Um, with other uh, uh, sort of anti-detention um, activists and it was quite an interesting like disconnect so you've got William Hay telling the whole world that Britain wants to lead the way in protecting brown and black women in faraway countries from violence and then you have these women who had been through a terrible sort of racist and horrible system that was that was built here in the mm. UK and these women aren't protected like there's lots of evidence, um, like Asylum Aid have, have done a lot of reports, Women for Refugee Women have done a lot of surveys about women who have gone through Yarswood and who have tried to seek asylum in this country, and the whole process is um, traumatising. And um, I think only a couple of, or last week perhaps, um, Theresa May was challenged uh, about the sort of detaining pregnant women in Yarswood. So the UK is doing all these horrible things <laughs> domestically, but at the same time wants to be a leader in helping the same women in other countries. It just doesn't make sense. So, um, and I know a lot of um, sort of radical um, feminist Muslim women also worry that things like um, terrorism sort of legislation are kind of like they, they talk about protecting 
women from things like FGM or sort of um, forced marriages in the same breath as it, it's it's all kind of part of the security and terrorism legislation. And so it, it, it's so tied up in that it doesn't feel genuine. It's right. more about persecuting brown men than protecting these women, because if you really wanted to protect them, you would you would you know you wouldn't be cutting specialist domestic violence services for example you wouldn't be detaining them in in immigration detention centers when they've been tortured and raped in other countries back to rebecca in just a minute but first this bit that really in 2016 i shouldn't have to talk about anymore <laughs> Followed quite closely by Horn and Corden, my least favourite double act is racism and politicians. Despite popularity waning over the 20th century, racism and politicians still keep staging unwanted comeback appearances even though the material is hugely outdated and offensive and there's only a limited amount of die-hard fans who want to see it. Over the last few weeks, figures from both main parties have been spouting racist opinions with abandons like sprinklers filled with acidic piss. Labour have had to set up an investigation into anti-Semitism within their own party after inflammatory comments from MP Naz Shah, former London Mayor Ken Livingstone and Councillor Ilias Aziz all led to their suspension. Meanwhile, Zach Goldsmith's campaign to become mayor has been accused of being Islamophobic by, well, everyone that can read, including other members of the Conservative Party. I wonder if somewhere right now the Liberal Democrats are all sitting around saying we need to find something shitty to say about Buddhists to get in on this press action. Norman, quickly go on your Facebook and type meditations for twats. Hurry. Let's look at Labour first, who have had the sort of bad press week that, well, let's be honest, they have most weeks. Except this time it's going to be quite hard for them to shake accusations of anti-Semitism that have been building for quite a while. Back in March, Labour suspended vice chair of their Woking group, Vicky Kirby, for posting on social media that Hitler was a Zionist god and that Jews have big noses. Uh, and they also suspended activist Jerry Downing, who said it was time to deal with the Jewish question. Which, if he'd just Googled, he'd have found, like I did, a whole website called Ask a Rabbi, which really, really helps. Then there have been accusations from the Oxford University Labour Club of some of the student members having some kind of problem with Jews. And then in the past week, it was discovered that MP Nashar shared posts on her Facebook wall, which were even worse than those follow your dreams motivational ones. I mean, what happens if you dream of going to space on a giant bee before getting married to a Dorito, eh? What then? How am I meant to follow that? No, uh, Nashar shared one post that said the Israeli population should be moved to the US, which simultaneously manages to offend both Israelis and racists in middle America all at once. She then did another post equating Israelis to Nazis, causing her to be suspended from the Labour Party after writing an apology letter. And this could have led to the furor dying down, but then former Mayor of London Ken Livingstone defended Naz Shah, saying her comments weren't anti-Semitic, as a real anti-Semite doesn't just hate the Jews in Israel, they also hate their Jewish neighbour. Which, I mean, firstly, shows that Ken likes to defuse an explosive situation by adding extra bombs to the one about to go off and then telling everyone to come round and watch. And secondly, that just doesn't make sense. What, a real anti-Semite doesn't just hate the Jews in Israel, but also their Jewish neighbours? What, so it's not racist if you only say it about people who can't hear you? I mean, does that work with everything? It's not murder if you send the anthrax really far away to someone you picked out of a phone book, but if you're friends with them on LinkedIn, you're in trouble, mate. Ken then also said that Hitler supported Zionism in the 1930s, which isn't historically accurate, and it all kicked off. 
I mean, when, oh when, oh when, oh when, will people stop misrepresenting Hitler, eh? And just to credit him for all the awful stuff he actually did, ugh, it's so not fair. Unfortunately, Ken has a bit of a bad rap for these sort of comments after he called a Jewish reporter in 2006 a Nazi war criminal. And you start to wonder if Ken Livingstone is the only politician that would do his career a huge service by actually being less honest. Ken has now been suspended from the Labour Party and since then three Labour councillors have been suspended too, also for Facebook posts. Jeremy Corbyn has said that Labour is absolutely against anti-Semitism and racism in any form, but the media aren't as convinced, saying that Labour are riddled with anti-Semites and pointing to Jeremy Corbyn having previously said that Hamas and Hezbollah are his friends. And all of this just before an election, which is incredibly handy. So, let's quickly go through this. I mean, firstly, accusing an entire party of over 200,000 people of anti-Semitism is a sort of offensive accusatory generalisation that caused all of this at the start. I mean, they're not all going to be anti-Semites. That's impossible and very unlikely. Secondly, Labour have a long history of fighting all racism, including anti-Semitism, as early as their involvement in the Battle of Cable Street in 1936 against Oswald Mosley's black shirts. And Jeremy Corbyn himself has been very active in fighting against racism his entire political career. It's very easy to find that if you Google. However, Corbyn has also been pro the rights of the Palestinian people and outwardly spoken against the actions of the Israeli government. And here's the very important bit about this. It is totally possible to be anti-Israeli government and pro-Palestine without being anti-Semitic. That's what I do all the time. I mean, personally, I think the Israeli government have oppressed and killed Palestinian men, women and children for years, and it's something that needs to be called out and challenged. The Israeli government have repeatedly used disproportionate force on people in Gaza and are currently breaking the Fourth Geneva Convention by building on the land there, which means it's breaking UN codes of human rights. Back in 2012, the Deputy Prime Minister of Israel said that he unreservedly wanted to blow Gaza back to the Middle Ages, which is a horrible and upsetting thing to say. Also, in the Middle Ages, Jewish and Muslim people lived together in peace under Saladin, so more fool him. I mean, the thing is, it's a long and very, very complicated situation which requires a lot of time and reading to really understand. And if you watch the Channel 4 interview of Jeremy Corbyn from July 2015, he does understand that, and he also says that he referred to Hamas and Hezbollah as friends in a very collective way because he was trying to persuade them to be involved in talks to bring peace to the area which is something that the head of Mossad also said needs to happen. I understand that. I understand calling people friends so that a situation appeals to them more. I do that all the time at uh, comedy gigs. I always tell the audience that they're very lovely, even though more often than not, I hate every single one of them. Anyway, Israel is one of the world's most complicated political situations, and there are many Jewish people that are also opposed to what the government are doing too. In fact, several Jewish members of Labour wrote an open letter to The Guardian saying they do not believe the Labour Party is anti-Semitic as a whole and that these accusations are part of a campaign against Labour. And that's something that's been repeated by Diane Abbott and Len McCluskey. And yeah, that's a tricky thing. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. 
you really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. To say, because, I mean, yeah, Najshah's Facebook posts were found and released by right-wing Guido Fawkes blogger, the appropriately named Paul Staines, as he often does, and it's usually with shit that he's proudly stirred himself. Also, a confrontation between MP John Mann and Ken Livingston, where Mann called Ken a Nazi apologist in front of reporters on the stairs at Westminster TV Centre, seemed a bit over the top and set up to the kind of extent that you thought the ghost of Jeremy Beadle might appear. And the Labour MPs who've been most vocal about all of this are ones such as Wes Streeting, who seems to be the Labour Party's personal troll mascot. But whether it's rife within the party or not, the anti-Semitism in Labour needs to be dealt with as it can only benefit the party and humanity in the long run. Otherwise, it certainly won't pass over. Hey, get it? Pass over? I'm sorry, this is really hard to write about. And now to the Conservatives, who seem to have enjoyed calling out Labour on its racism issues, with David Cameron mentioning it a few times. And I suppose Dave would know all about anti-Semitism after saying in 2008 that Gordon Brown's plans for educational school trips to Auschwitz were a headline-grabbing gimmick. I mean, if Dave thought a trip to a concentration camp was a gimmick, I'm very glad he doesn't work in advertising. How about one free depiction of the Tiananmen Square protest with every can of tango? No, Dave, no. In 2014, David Cameron also failed to kick Aidan Burley out of the Conservative Party, despite Burley attending a party in France in an SS uniform while shouting Nazi slogans. I mean, it's just lads, isn't it? Lads, eh? Ugh, lads. Last week, when I was talking with Rachel Holdsworth, we briefly mentioned Zach Goldsmith's disgusting campaign to be London's Conservative mayor, which has mostly included him suggesting that because Labour's candidate Sadiq Khan is Muslim, that he has terrorist connections. Zach has unsuccessfully linked Sadiq with certain extremists, all of which either date back to when Sadiq was a human rights lawyer and as a result had to represent all sorts of people, or they are leaders and heads of communities that Zach Goldsmith has known and on occasion had pictures taken with and vocally supported in the hope that they'd vote Conservative. Goldsmith's campaign also sent divisive letters to Hindi, Sikh and Tamil families playing on Sadiq's Muslim and Pakistani background, saying that he would be dangerous to them if he became mayor. I mean, Sadiq is only five foot six at best. I doubt he's dangerous to anyone unless they have particularly weak shins. I mean, I say that. I'm only five foot five, and dangerous is my middle name, though that is mostly due to overexcitable parents. Then on Sunday, Goldsmith wrote a piece for the Mail, you know, that constantly tempered non-partisan news source. Ha! Jokes! Saying that a vote for Sadiq would be a vote for Labour who thinks terrorists are its friends, juxtaposed next to a picture of the bus that was destroyed on 7-7. You know you've done something wrong when it's called Dog Whistle Politics by Baroness Wasi, a woman whose ethics don't stretch as far as her expenses. Hopefully Thursday's voters of the brilliantly multicultural London will prove that this sort of campaign just won't work here. 
Or alternatively, I suppose, with previous Mayor Ken Livingstone's recent statements and Boris Johnson's history of calling black people pickaninnies with watermelon smiles, maybe it's just a tradition that we have to have a racist mayor in the capital and Zach will get in after all. Oh God, I hope not. Now, back to Rebecca. But I mean, I think that is sort of how the government seems to be doing it at the moment, rather than distracting us from how they are treating refugees and how few refugees we're taking in. They seem to just be focusing on the terror threat of people from other countries, you know, yeah. which uh, which I think worryingly seems to work uh, in, in, yeah. in the headlines. Um, I mean, uh, today, even the, the you know, the, the prime minister, prime minister's question said we're doing enough to help refugees. Um, but I, I think it's, you, you mentioned Yarlswood and I, I know a little bit about it, but I don't think people do in general. Why is it, why is treatment so bad there? What's what are the problems with Yarlswood? Um, I think uh, the problems with Yarlswood um, are the same as the problems with all immigration detention centres in the UK. Uh, I think that there's just a huge lack of accountability and transparency. So you have these centres which are effectively run like prisons by private companies. Um, ordinary people don't have access to the inside of the centres. So I was at um, a detention centre near Heathrow yesterday and to go in and visit someone, I've got to give my fingerprints. I've got to have a full body search. Wow. I can't take in my mobile. I can't take in anything, basically. I can take in a few coins to um, use for like the um, sort of food machines, the snack machines. Um, and you, you meet people in these sort of little visiting areas and you've got just like rows of tables and chairs and so there's no privacy so anytime I go it's quite interesting because you see um sort of partners with their kids coming to see people who are locked up and and these aren't these aren't criminals yeah it they are people who um have the wrong migration status or who are applying for asylum and they're in these very sort of prison-like places and I think each year, the UK detains about 30,000 people. My God, it's that many? Yeah, yeah, 30,000 people go in and out of detention, and a lot of them are released eventually on bail. So um, I was uh, speaking to the, the guy I interviewed yesterday. Uh, it's a pretty horrific story. Uh, he, he had um, serious mental health issues. He was sectioned under the Mental Health Act, so he was in a mental health hospital, and from the hospital, he was taken to immigration detention. It's not very clear why. Right. Uh, and, and so I, I just speaking to him yesterday, I spoke to him for like an hour and a half and he definitely had issues, but he can't access legal aid because of the changes to um, legal aid since the coalition came in and, and the fact that a lot of the migration areas have been taken out of legal aid. Uh, he doesn't have access to decent um, mental health care. This is something that's come up a lot at Yarlswood as well, that health care that's provided in these services just isn't sufficient to deal with, you know, people who are sometimes former victim, victims of torture and things like that. So he, he's kind of stuck and he's got no recourse to justice and, and or to get anyone to help challenge what's happening to him. Um, and that's just okay. And, that, and, and that's just one case out of thousands um, I don't know if people remember the um, Channel 4 expose of um, the way that Yarlswood guards were speaking to women last year 
that's another example right. of you know racist attitudes they were quite yeah. abusive towards the women then there were the allegations of sexual assault and rape as well a couple of years ago um so yeah there's there's lots of horrible things going on in centers and there's no way for us to sort of challenge it it's, it's so depressing that people have come here seeking asylum and then we stick them in a prison and abuse them that's the yeah. most horrific welcome that you could give anyone that's that's come here for refuge um because yeah you mentioned i think the other day they said that is it theresa may's decided pregnant women uh now only have to stay in yarlswood 72 hours or something which already sounds (laughs) still a horrific amount for a woman carrying a baby there's still several days in in these conditions that's unbelievable Yeah. yeah i think also it's psychologically it's um they're just very strange places I mean, first of all, they're just full of black and brown people. And it's not like they're the only people who come migrate to the UK. Mm. So already there's just these horrible connotations around the whole, around these centres. It doesn't, it's, um, people go in there do just go crazy. And also there's just the uncertainty of not, not knowing what's going to happen to you. So not knowing, because the Home Office, there's one woman I've been interviewing, she's um, from Congo and she was raped there twice and she came here to a claim for asylum claim asylum she was she spent time in Yarlswood she was eventually released but she's been waiting for two years for the home office to make a decision on her case to tell her whether or not she can stay in this country in the meantime she's got kids and they're just living in this tiny room um in a sort of big shared house full of other asylum seekers and she's surviving on very little money and she can't sort of make decisions about her future. She's very depressed. Um, she's definitely got post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and there are so many people like that. And 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 they're just trapped, aren't they? I guess there's no way they're out because yeah, they're waiting yeah. on, on the decision and, and they and, and they can't do anything to, to speed that decision up either. No, no, not not at all. There just isn't. And and separately, because at, at the same time you've got government well, I, it, I don't know what's going to happen under Michael Goh, but certainly under Chris Graylin, he introduced all of these changes to the way that legal aid is, is funded and paid for and what what um, what is covered by legal aid. You've got a whole um, profession of lawyers who are, you know, got massive caseloads. They're really struggling to, to take on extra cases, to spend the time that these cases need because they're really complicated. You mm. can't just deal with them in a few hours and... And, and be, that be covered by fixed fees. So you've got that as a separate issue. So that the recourse that people might have to be supported and, and help to get to speed things up, that's all being cut away. Um, and then you've got local authorities who are also very burdened and they've experienced, I, I think, what is it? I think it's 40% of um, cuts to their budget since 2010. And they're they're having to deal with all these people in their constituencies in terms of housing, in terms of, um, you know, dealing with things like homelessness. And the central government isn't giving them any extra money to do to deal with that. So, yeah, I I don't know what the future holds, but it's it's pretty bleak. Yeah, it's it's really bleak. And and it it seems to be uh, just more and more sort of unfairly prejudiced towards people seeking asylum. Here, there, there was an article I think I saw you retweet actually about the the you're mentioning um, how legal aid's been cut, but haven't the court fees for asylum cases risen quite highly as well yes. recently? Yes, they have, and I think um, 
so I'm, I'm, I think I said this in my talk as well, I focus a lot on, on the people who are worst affected by mm. everything. But I think it's um, very helpful for, you know, whatever your interest is in. So if you're interested in, I don't know, helping uh, white or British working class people, and you just think we really shouldn't be focusing on um, migrants or people who might not even have the right to stay in this country. I think it's really important to look at these people because actually I think the government trials a lot of the horrible things they do to everyone else on this particular group. So um, when I've when I've reported um, on social housing evictions, for example, I've noticed that people were having to pay these huge court fees. So they were they would be. So their social landlord would be taking them to court for rent rent arrears, mm. and these rent arrears have been incurred because the Department for Work and Pensions has screwed up their housing benefit, or they can't afford to pay the bedroom tax. Then, on top of that, they're charged two hundred pounds for the court fees. Oh. So that's just added to their debt. So that happening to um, when it happens to asylum seekers and refugees first, you know it's going to happen. To the rest of the population. The same with like punitive, um, the punitive culture at the job centre, for example. The way that people are punished for not, you know, compiling the uh, sort of um, following the rules mm. and sanctions and things like that. That's the sort of attitude that we've had towards asylum seekers or or migrant um, workers for a very long time. And that regime already exists there. It's kind of a template for the rest of the system. Wow. I mean, it, so, it's yeah. yeah it, it it always baffles me that people seem to think that a good way to kind of deal with a, a refugee crisis is to make this country worse for everyone, yes. uh, so that it's yes. unappealing. That that doesn't it doesn't make sense to me at all. That that's a good idea for anyone involved whatsoever, no. um, rather no. than just helping other people. Um, exactly. This is what I felt like last summer when. Um, people were worried about the refugee crisis and all the, the, the people coming and how would our societies cope and, um, you know, thinking about work and, and social services. And in my view, I think the reason, part, part of the reason why they're worried, because they know that if they have to um, try and provide support to these people, they would also have to try and provide proper, decent support to their own citizens that they don't that they at the moment they're, they're 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 falling short they're not providing enough social affordable housing they're not providing enough decent jobs for people um so yeah i think the refugee crisis is actually a really good opportunity for us to rethink how what we want our society to look like and what's how we help people and what sort of common services do we need to, to be a good society to steal the phrase yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I, I mean, I sort of worry because uh, it's it's something I come across actually to be fair more on social media than in real life. But people's kind of anti-refugee sentiments, um, and I, and I sort of wonder if some of that comes from, you know, people now be having to be selfish for themselves because of because of welfare cuts and austerity, and people. I, I think the government have done very well to kind of go, look, it's the problem. Other people coming here has caused this problem, rather yeah. than any of their own austerity measures. Um, do you think people have become more more selfish? I mean, wh where do you think this is this has come from? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm quite optimistic, and I'm not so cynical about people. I don't, I don't think people are selfish. I think, and this is just again, I'm I'm just a hack. I'm not an academic or or like a commentator or anything like that. I literally just go out and report and talk to people. But 
from from doing that work, what I find is that there is a lot more solidarity on the ground. And mm. I think people say terrible things when they're just in really difficult circumstances. And I, I've seen that over and over again. I, I've interviewed um, people who, for example, and I think I might mention this in my talk, I interviewed um, a guy from Notting Hill in West London last year, just before the general elections, and he'd been evicted from his house. And it was a house that he'd grown up in. And he was just talk, talking to me about how, and he, he was um, he was a construction worker. So he'd been really hit by the recession. So he hadn't had decent work for quite a few years. And he was just talking about how his area changed. Obviously, if you go to Notting Hill now, it's quite posh, but he was like really working class. And, you know, he said it was very different when they were there. Mm. Um, you had a lot more sort of poor black families there living alongside the poor white families. But one of the things that he said to me was that um, I just I just um, I get really angry when I go to the job centre because I see a lot of people who are lazy and they don't deserve benefits. And I, I watch all these documentaries about people sort of on benefits when they shouldn't be. And then you get migrants coming in and, and getting houses before the rest of us. And I spent enough time with him to know that 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 was kind of a really superficial sentiment. That's something that he, a narrative that he had just consumed from mainstream media. Right. And the more time I spent spent with him, the more I realised that he was he's just had a difficult few years and it's really hard and no one is providing a solution or an answer as to why this is happening. Like he actually went into an estate agent and said, um, are you serious? Do you want me to pay a thousand pounds a week for a one bedroom flat? And, and he just didn't he he just didn't understand why things are as they are why the market works that way why everything was so expensive when he just didn't have enough money at the moment so it was it was quite interesting and I did actually ask him so who are you going to vote for in the election and he just said oh I don't really do politics because it's not for people like me it's for I don't know he just he just didn't have an answer so politics he wasn't even thinking about UKIP wow. So it was it was quite interesting. But I think a lot of people are like that. And I think a lot of resentment can be traced back to how uncertain and insecure and how precarious the job market and housing market is for a lot of people. Definitely. Definitely. It's something I find uh, because I, I'm self-employed. So I spend all day looking online and reading things and trying to educate myself about stuff. Uh, and and I meet people when I go out and do comedy gigs that don't have time to do that. They work all day. They come home, they see a few headlines and then their lives are affected by certain cuts or certain things and they blame whatever they hear on the news is is to blame for it, you know, um, because there isn't yeah. time to research properly, I think. Exactly. And like all the all the people I've interviewed who are on some form of um, social, social security or benefits, one of the things they always, always say to me is, I'm not like those other people. This happened and this happened, and so I'm now on benefits. It's not a long term thing. But everyone always apologises. They always think oh, that sad. there's this mythical person who is like scrounging off the system. And I'm not quite 100% sure those people exist. No, no, no. I, I, I definitely haven't met any. Which uh, <laughs> is so. So I mean, I try and um, you're you're very optimistic, which is brilliant. But I think um, I, I always sort of realise that sometimes I get to the end of these interviews and then go, oh, this is all a bit miserable. And um, so, <laughs> what uh, for the listeners of this podcast? Uh, you you mentioned um, was it the what was the name of the group you mentioned earlier? 
was it? Oh, uh, the campaign group Black Sisters was that right? Oh, sub sub all Black Sisters. Oh, so Black Sisters. Okay, so and so what other are there several other groups and campaigns? What should people be yeah. checking out and looking for if they want to get involved or if they want to find out more about this and what they can do? I think one of the positive things that's happening is that people are realizing that the government isn't going to help them. Politicians aren't going to help. Sorry, but political parties don't seem to be helping. So they're just getting on and doing things themselves. And there's a lot of um, community organising happening. And uh, you see groups who are kind of, cam- they're, they're combining campaigning with sort of just on the ground casework and supporting people. So I've come across, um, there's a group in North London called, I think it's called the Kilburn Unemployed Workers. And they do a lot of work around um, people who might face sanctions or people who've got trouble with their PIP or disability um, living allowance um, applications. There's Sisters Uncut who um, have little groups, offshoots all around the country, working around the camp, looking at um, the camp, the cuts to domestic violence services, but also looking more general at state violence against women in this country and how to challenge it. Yeah, they've been mentioned a few times on this show now, and they're brilliant. (laughs) Yeah, they're fantastic, and they're so clever. There's a lot of really smart people in that group. Um, And there's, um, I've done a lot of work for the Women's Budget Group, and they are a group of um, academics and feminist economists, I should say, and um, professionals, and they've all got, like, different expertise and different areas of economic policy, and every year they come together to analyse Jill Josborne's... um, budgets and spending review and they that they've actually been doing that for more than a decade so they started under the last labor government and those reports are very useful ammunition if you want to sort of educate yourself on who's being most affected by the cuts and how and in what ways that's that's quite handy um just trying to think of other groups there's lots of um very exciting anti-detention, um, immigration detention groups um, around the country. Um, in Scotland, in Glasgow, there's a group called the Unity Centre and they do a lot of fantastic work with refused asylum seekers and a lot of the people within that group are actually have actually gone through the asylum system themselves, a system themselves. So they are, it's not just led by sort of young, white, middle-class students. It's actually quite a good mix. That's good. Um, Movement for Justice, that's another group as well. Women for Refugee Women, who I mentioned before. Yeah, there are loads. <laughs> good. Yeah. That's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. It's sort of nice to know that there, there's something people can actively go and seek out and go, right, we're not completely helpless. We're yeah, or we'll just set up your own group <laughs> and do something within your community. Oh, the housing, the housing, um, social housing campaigns as well have been very good. There's lots of stuff going on in um, East London where I live and I'm sure it's the same across the country as well. Many thanks to Rebecca for talking to me. Um, You can find Rebecca on Twitter at uh, at Rebecca underscore Omanira. That's O-M-O N-I-R-A and Rebecca writes for a number of publications but the one that she asked me to tell you to check out is lacuna.org that's L-A-C-U-N-A.org which is a human rights magazine which I've checked out several times since we chatted uh, and it is a fascinating and very very useful website 
Um, also, uh, Rebecca mentioned a number of groups, uh, including Southall Black Sisters, who are on Twitter at SB Sisters, and their website is southallblacksisters.org.uk. Uh, there's Kilburn Unemployed Workers Group, who are at uh, kilburnunemployed.blogspot.com. Uh, Sisters Uncut, who Abby Milk... Um, Sisters Uncut, who Abby Wilkinson mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, they're on Twitter at Sisters Uncut or SistersUncut.org. Uh, there's the Women's Budget Group at Twitter. Um, there's the Women's Budget Group on Twitter at Women's Budget GRP or WBG.org.uk. And Women for Refugee Women are on Twitter at For Refugee Women. That's the number four or refugeewomen.co.uk. And that is a lot of links, isn't it? I mean, chances are you're probably not going to remember all of those or write them down quickly enough. So I will tweet them all from the Parpol Bro Twitter account and I'll pop them on the Facebook too, as I think I've forgotten a few probably. Um, and as Rebecca says, you probably have groups more local to you anyway. So uh, as there is no Partly Big Society this week, mainly due to my lack of research, uh, why not check out groups near you and um let me know if there's any that you're involved in that we can tweet about or uh, i say we it's just me uh, that i can tweet about or mention on the show and i'll give them a plug on this and on our social media pages plan stan yes indeed um next week i'm going to be talking to dr evan harris from hacked off who i interviewed last week and was both really interesting and made me realize just how little i understood the entire leverson's trial just clearly didn't know anything um i've got a few more interviewees lined up but i am always interested to hear from you guys if you have got anyone you'd like me to chat to in particular or any issues that you'd like to hear explained that i can maybe find someone to talk to about um as always the email is partly political broadcast at gmail.com blah 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 twitter blah 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 facebook you know the drill <laughs> The government is going to release its BBC white paper at some point this month. And yeah, BBC white paper just sounds like it's going to be some fancy A4 sheets with the Broadcasting Corporation's logo at the top. But actually, instead, it is a charter that clearly explains just how much John Whittingdale, the Culture Secretary, hates Auntie Beeb and in quite how many ways. While none of this is 100% guaranteed, rumours say that this will include suggesting that BBC stop putting its most popular shows in primetime slots as it's unfair to the competition. You know, it's unfair, isn't it? It's unfair for ITV to have to go head-to-head -head with the likes of Doctor Who, Strictly Come Dancing, Sherlock, or in the case of Channel 5, having to go head-to-head -head with anything at all that moves and has sound. Whittingdale has expressed that he isn't sure if the channel should be all things to all people or have more precisely targeted output. You know, like it clearly doesn't do with BBC Two, Four, CBBC, BBC or the online BBC Three that are all targeted at different audiences. I mean, perhaps they should do even more subsections and have a channel for every year of your age with unpopular shows for everyone. I mean, I'm 35 and it's 7pm, so I just can't wait to tune into Britain's worst annoying scraping sounds. The BBC may also be stopped from advertising its own shows across its services, meaning that you'll just have to guess when something new is starting on TV. Or worse, if they change all the timings, you may never be able to successfully avoid the one show ever again. And on top of all that, John Whittingdale says that he wants to end the iPlayer loophole, which isn't where you can somehow accidentally move the top selection bar while trying to type in a programme's name on the search screen and then suddenly you're on the channel's pages again and then you're sent back to the start and you're like, oh, why is this happening? I mean, why, why haven't they sorted that out? Anyway, no. 
No, what it means is that the iPlayer will be password protected so only license fee payers can use it. Which does to an extent make total sense, um, except that a lot of young people use iPlayer, especially now BBC3 is online, and it's not your average 14 year old that pays the license fee. And if it is your 14 year old that pays the fee, then let's be fair, it's not very expensive, I suppose it wouldn't take too much out of their pocket money at all. In fact, I say let's put this in the charter, 14 year olds to have to pay the license fee. Alright, maybe not. The current Royal Charter is up this year and the newly appointed charter will last for 11 years, which means that the BBC would be okay until 2028. But it will stipulate that there is a mid-term review five years in just to check that it's destroying itself properly. And if all this goes through as planned, then the next five years could see the BBC putting on less and less popular and more and more nuanced shows until the viewership hugely declines and the government can prove it's not working and sell everything to Rupert Murdoch so he can just replace BBC Two with a 24-hour loop of him slow dancing with Jerry Hall. And as a result of a lack of competition, ITV, Sky and the others won't even bother trying to make anything that's watchable and will just have endless reruns of Animals Sing the Most Tragic Ballads and a panel show about panel shows about panel shows. I mean, I say that, but I'm pretty sure that's on Dave already. And that is the end of this week's show. Um, sorry there was no weekly question. I couldn't think of one. And to be honest... I didn't really try very hard. I went to watch Captain America Civil War instead, and it was brilliant. Uh, hopefully there will be a question next week, though, uh, so do keep your eyes out for that. Uh, and as I say every single week, if you enjoy this show, please tell other people to have a listen. Um, let us know your thoughts about it on Twitter, at Parpolbro, or Parpolbro on Facebook, or our stupidly long email, partlypoliticalbroadcast.gmail.com. And please, please review us on iTunes. And if you don't enjoy this show, never, ever let me know and just go away. Uh, you may have noticed also some new beats in the background of this podcast in the last few episodes. Uh, that is because my brother, The Last Skeptic, has yet another new beat tape out in the next few weeks. Uh, your beat tape sucks volume two. So do go and check that out. And then you can download and play it and do your own impressions of me not knowing anything about politics over the top of it. This week's show was brought to you by reasonable amounts nationally. But if I'd done them locally, they'd be totes illegal. Hee <laughs> hee. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.